Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yo, welcome in, welcome in, welcome in. This is the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Thank you so much for clicking on the episode. I truly appreciate it, especially considering that my guest for this episode, it's so great to talk with her because Dawn Turner has spent her journalistic career like really delving into the minutia that is Chicago, like understanding how it works from a political standpoint, understanding how it works from a neighborhood standpoint, understanding how it works in an inequity standpoint. She has cut her teeth covering this city in a lot of ways as a reporter on the beats, like out here kicking up dirt trying to figure out what is going on in the city to being a columnist. She's done a little bit of everything, working for the Tribune in the book, and we'll talk about the book in a second. Like She talks about like starting out at the Sun-Times. She's been at the Washington Post, at PBS NewsHour, CBS Sunday Morning, on NPR. It's great. She has... Spent a lot of time writing novels. She's got a couple of those. But she wrote a memoir of sorts called Three Girls from Bronzeville. And the subtitle is A Uniquely American Memoir of Race, Fate, and Sisterhood. I saw this book was coming out. I've always followed Dawn on Twitter. And I saw that she's putting this book out. I was like, I got to get my hands on this book. I got to read it. So I reached out to her, and she was nice enough to send it to me. What I love about the book itself, if you're a Chicagoan, I, I think the, the story is universal. The, the story of her, her sister, and her best friend is universal. It can speak to many audiences. But specifically, if you are from Chicago or love Chicago history, learning what it was like growing up in Chicago and in Dawn's case, also in Champaign-Urbana, which is in the book, and I don't want to give too much of it away as you'll hear me say to her inside this conversation. It's a story that I'm glad is being told. There are some subjects in, in the book and in our conversation that I'm glad are being had and, and I, I think that you will enjoy the book. And again, the name of the book is Three Girls from Bronzeville, a uniquely American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood. Go buy the book. I almost feel like I should bring back book clubs so we could talk about this book because I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. But for now, what will have to suffice are the thoughts of Dawn Turner. She wrote this book. You need to go get it. 
And if I need to convince you, you can hear our conversation. A big portion of the book, as it starts out, talks about the Great Migration. Black folks moving from the South to big cities in the North, like Chicago. Most families, mine included, have a story like this. My father's side of the family is, is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My mother's side of the family is from outside of Starkville, Mississippi, in a town that you've never heard of. So I was able to, with this book, harken back to what life was like in the city for my parents and my grandparents. And the first person that I gave the book to after I read it was my mom. And she's been kind of footnoting, hey, you know, we... Because where Dawn grows up is pretty much across the street from where my grandparents moved. So being able to see all of this through Dawn's eyes and then seeing it from my mom's eyes, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But now, as Dawn and I were recording, there were extensive studies, one by the Sun-Times, one by the Tribune, about black flight. Black people leaving Chicago and why they're doing it. A lot of people are, you seeing folks move out west, folks move to Atlanta, folks move to, to Indiana for a lot of different reasons. So my conversation with Dawn, since she covered this for decades working here in Chicago, was about the juxtaposition of her origin story being steeped in the Great Migration while we're now seeing an exodus by black people in 2021-2022. The story of um, black people here in Chicago has always been kind of a bittersweet one. My great-grandparents moved to Chicago in 1916 as part of the Great Migration. My grandmother was three years old at the time. And, and of course, I mean, they and you know, many other black migrants uh, from the South were uh, in pursuit of the American dream. And they were hoping to have something far more, that looked far more different than the Jim Crow South. And so when we think about even the, the people and their aspirations back then, and we look at people who are leaving Chicago now, today, um, it's, it's a story of, of dreams dashed. Uh, it's a story of people who have, for, for many, many decades, have been striving, um, it, as I said, in pursuit of something, and it has proved elusive um, for so many different and very complicated reasons. But I think it's the same story um, over and over again. Yeah, and, and it's, it, it made me sad. I thought about it like I'm, I'm a homeowner on the south side of Chicago, and that's kind of where I've, I've been my most of my adult life and and I was sitting there going yeah I, I understand like for the first time ever I'm 46 mm -hmm. and for the first time ever I've had the yeah maybe you should have looked for a place in the suburbs or maybe you should move to another city and you know how people from Chicago are like we're we're very provincial and and th there's all the memes about ask someone about Chicago that's from Chicago and they will tell you everything about Chicago and how great it is. And I I wonder why we've kind of gotten to this place now where we don't see it as the same. And if that's generational 
or is is it really just experience based? Well, I think it's been the this this is not a new story. Um, Chicago has you know has for some people has been um, this wonderful place to succeed, um, but it's also for other people it's been this um, this bittersweet tale. And, and so, you know, when you're, you know, Hyde Park is, is a lovely place, um, but if you go to some communities on the South side, and I just, I, it, it pains me every time, you know, the South side is painted with one brush, um, but there are thriving communities on the South side. There are beleaguered communities. Um, and this is the case all over the country where you have a tale of several different communities um, um, or a tale of, se of several different cities even. Um, but I, I think that the challenge is, is that if you live in a community where the institutions do not work for you, where policing, you're either over-policed or under-policed, um, where garbage pickup lags, where the street lights, um, if they blow out, uh, then they're not replaced for a long time. You cannot walk to a grocery store, um, a place where uh, you can have fresh fruits and vegetables. You cannot necessarily walk to, um, to, to a hospital for health care. Uh, and and the, the schools um, are failing students and the investment in terms of businesses. Um, I mean, that's, that's the, the ground is almost fallow in that regard in terms of building and houses are boarded up. But then you are acutely aware that the systems and institutions um, in a community, maybe a few blocks or a couple of miles from you. From you. I mean, those, those systems and institutions are um, uh, they're, they're working <laughs> and, and the communities look very different. And even the, you know, the, the, uh, the age, um, the, ex the life expectancy, uh, in various communities, even neighboring communities are very, are dramatically different. And so, you know, you, you set your sights on a different, um, <laughs> you know, a different climate, a different place because, and you look for some place where you can thrive. And that's what I think, you know, that is, part of the American dream. And unfortunately, you know, Chicago has, has, has issues um, that are very uh, specific to Chicago, but, you know, I've, I've traveled broadly and I've seen communities around the country and around the world. And, you know, it's where race is concerned. I mean, our city is not unique. Um, where you have people who were, you go back to the Great Migration, who were forced to live in a very specific area of town, and that town was grossly, I mean, that, that area was grossly neglected. And so you have, um, you have these, these uh, deformities <laughs> that were, that persist over the decades. And so redlining, restrictive housing covenants. I saw uh, a Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago study, um, I think it was last year, that said that the 1930s redlining policies that were in place um, back then, uh, I mean, they, it was it redlining or home? I, mean, I think, it was, no, it wasn't. Yeah, it was redlining um, because, because you can trace the disparities between black and white home ownership and black and white home values back to those 1930s, um, those 30s, 1930s policies. And so they account for like nearly 50% of those disparities. And I mean, that's, that's no small thing. Yeah, it's set a floor. 
and, and yeah. then to come back from, from that floor is difficult. I am curious, when you go back towards Lake Meadows, you, you are around Bronzeville, and you see that the what's happened now is the value that has been placed in the area that's close to the lake, even right. south of downtown. What do you see now? Well, I mean, it is um, for the, well, first of all, the public housing project um, where Deborah Kim and I, and the story is three girls from Bronzeville. And so we are the three girls, Deborah Kim and myself, um, that, that, that housing project that was right across the street from the privately owned apartment complex where we lived, um, that is, as I'm certain you know, is no longer there, it's been raised. And it was part of the, the city's plan to transform public housing. Um, and so, uh, interestingly, that 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 place is still um, fairly. There was this big. Um, there were these plans to build to build affordable housing in that area. But then you had the 2008 housing. Um, you know, I mean, the, the recession and the the housing crash. And so those plans were never really realized. There's some development there, but not. I mean, there's still a lot of open land. Um, Lawless Gardens, the place where we grew up, uh, Lawless was, um, I was three years old in 1968 when Lawless opened and it was a beautiful place. It was named after Theodore K. Lawless, the doctor, the world-renowned black dermatologist um, who had developed skin treatments for syphilis and leprosy among other uh, maladies. And this was a place where he just, you know, he designed it. John H. Johnson, the publisher, was one of the develop developers. And so you had these black principal developers. Uh, there was a black dentist as well. And this was supposed to be a housing development for kind of people in the middle. Lake Meadows uh, people were considered to be far more affluent. Then you had the public housing residents who were who, who, you know, who were um, poor, but, but Lawless Gardens was de designed for the people in the middle. And back then, I, you know, janitors chased down wayward pieces of garbage, garbage with a religious fervor. Mm -hmm. um, they were intent on having, you know, just colorful um, playgrounds and the grass was so beautifully manicured and, and there were gardens and all of that. And so it was a beautiful, it was a very beautiful space. And so when I see that now, um, it has fallen on hard times. Uh, there is some clear decay. Uh, and, and part of the, the thing that happened when we were growing up there is that over the years, um, there was a, a fence was built. It, it, I guess it was initially it was, it was wire link, but then it was torn down and replaced by a wrought iron fence. And so the fence was to keep people out of Wallace Gardens. And it's interesting now that the fence now is still there around the community, but the public housing development is no longer there. And so it's just doing what? <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's a, you know, quote, gated community that's, um, the, the gate is just there. So, uh, and, and the other part of Bronzeville now is that you have some beautiful gray stones, brown stones, um, 
that are um, selling for you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. new development, new condos that are selling for you know, easily half a million dollars. Um, this has always been prime, prime, beautiful, you know, property. The location, as you said, said juxt- juxtaposed to the lake, I mean, right there. Um, and and you have um, coffee houses, and I mean, I don't I, I don't know how they're faring now. It, because of the the pandemic, a lot of businesses, um, mom and pop shops are are, are struggling. Um, but I mean, I was there recently for a reading at a gorgeous art gallery, and I mean, just absolutely stunning. And there are just I mean, so there are, there are beautiful places in Bronzeville that I mean, you know, that are that are thriving or have the potential to thrive. Don, this is a really personal book. Like it yeah. is. So I'm wondering what went into the process of you saying, I'm going to lay my soul bare. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I did not want this to be a book that was, okay, one girl tells the business, the other two girls. Um, It had to be my story as well as their story. And the other part that was incredibly important to me is that I didn't want this to be a story about, oh, Dawn did everything perfectly. And Deborah and Kim, you know, they just, uh, they just didn't have a clue or they just didn't, um, they didn't do anything right. And I mean, that is absolutely not the case. We all stumbled. Um, We all had had, um, just different things that we had to go through. And so um, one of the things about writing a memoir, probably any book, um, is that you have so much material. And, and so I did have a lot of material on Kim and Deborah. I mean, from years of letters and diaries slash journal entries. And I had written about Deborah several times in the pages of the Chicago Tribune. And so their stories kind of came together a little easier. And my editor, bless her heart, Christine Pride, who has her own book out now, um, it, it, she's, she was just fantastic in making sure that she and I, she checked in with me to, to make sure that we did have a story about three girls. And, and then as I started to look inward about the stories that I wanted to tell, I just wanted to be as honest and as open as I could be. Yes, it is very personal. How hard is that to tell someone else's story? And and I, I remember reading Questlove's book, uh, Mo Meta Blues. And mm-hmm. what I loved about it is there's a portion of the book, I think it's the whole book actually, where there's an ombudsman like mm-hmm. in it, in the book. So like what? he would he'll tell a story. Mm-hmm. And then in the footnotes, it's like, that's not quite how it happened. Right. This is how, how how it happened. I thought it was such a brilliant storytelling device, but but right. you jumping and and sharing the lives of, of of Kim and of Deborah, how were you sure? Like how how did you know how careful to be without telling the 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 truth and and trying to to tell the story from your perspective? Right. Um. I did not want to depend solely on my memory. I wanted to interview people um, who knew me, who knew my sister and who knew my best friend, um, who knew our families at at various stages of our lives. And as I said, I was really fortunate um, to have, especially to to have my sister's voice 
in part um, via letters that she had sent me when I was away at college. And then when I, I lived in Florida for a year. And so we were able to correspond. Um, as, a, as a side note, I kind of feel, I, I worry about people who just rely solely on text messages and emails <laughs> these days, because those are so, you know, they're- Incomplete. They get rid of that stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, so I had, I, I interviewed a lot of people because I did want to, I mean, I have as a journalist, I've done this for many, many years, telling the stories of other people, um, but to train the lens um, inwardly, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it, it was definitely a challenge because there were things that I thought I knew and maybe I knew only a portion of it, you know, stories kind of trickle down in a way. And we all did that story in the classroom when we were kids and we would, somebody would say, would get a bit of information and then we'd have it travel to various students. Um, but stories do change in, in the tellings and depending on the, the, the people telling them. Um, so I just, but I wanted to get as close to the truth as I possibly could. And, and that was the only way that I, I knew to do it, to interview a lot of people. What was the hardest part for you to share? Because all of us have what we think is our identity and the things that yeah. we want people to know. So what became right. the most difficult thing for you to say, I'm going to put this out here for the world to know about? Well, I had talked about Deborah, as I said, in my um, in my columns in the Chicago Tribune. And at the time, I guess I wasn't really prepared to hear um, just people make comments about, you know, about about her story. And, and that, I know that sounds really odd because, of course, it's in the newspaper. And this was in 2007 or actually in 2000 when I first wrote about her. And, and just to get to, to listen to people kind of dissect, you know, dissect your life like that is, it was just really, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's to be expected um, if it's out there, but it's, it's interesting. But it's still, um, the, the hardest thing I think for me was not necessarily writing about me, but writing about my sister. Um, because while I lost a sister, my mother lost a daughter and my father has passed on, but I wanted to be very, careful and respectful of her story and to um and to make sure that i was telling it in a way that 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 was was kind and gentle to my mother and that was really important and the same thing about deborah it was incredibly important for me to make sure that i was telling her story in a way that was um you know that was respectful and that was that was true and that 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 was contextualized um, because me, I'm I'm used to people, you know, as, as I said, having written a column, I'm used to people going after me. Um, but and 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 you know, I can defend myself in that regard. But I just wanted to make sure because I know that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have criticism and all of that. But I wanted to make sure that their stories were super airtight because I feel incredibly honored and grateful that they allowed me to tell their stories and they being my mother allowed me to tell my sister's story. Um, but, but I just, I'm incredibly protective of that. And I want to make sure that they are not, you know, that, that they are not um, hit by shrapnel. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Your experience in Champaign, I yeah. thought, was really interesting, too. Yeah. Where here we have this award-winning writer uh, uh, who really struggled and kind of didn't know she was struggling in in the first year of college. How how do you think your experience parallels other black people, whether it's your generation or younger, their experience of college and then learning what it takes to succeed at that level? Yeah, um, I wanted to tell my college story. I mean, that was something you talk about shame. You know, one of the reasons why we don't talk about this stuff is that we feel like there's like this oxidation process that if you put it out there, then all of a sudden people look at you, you know, there's decay and they look at you in a very different way. Um, but it, it's an, I think it's an incredibly important story because even though um, I went through orientation down there in Urbana, <laughs> Champaign, and they, they told us very clearly that you're down here for one thing, and you're down here to study and to get your degree in four years. And your parents will be grateful if it's four years. Um, and, and I got down there, and I always say I wasn't partying, but I was protesting. And, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't matter what I was doing. Um, you know, the shanties on the quad, anti-apartheid, all of that stuff. I mean, that was during my generation. And, but they, um, they invited me to leave because my grade point average was. (laughs) (laughs) And, but, but here's, I mean, the real, the, the big part of the story, which I think is, is so important because yes, we all stumble. But for me, I was so grateful to have people in my future father-in-law who was able to direct me because the, the, the letter said initially, the letter said, you know, well, this is non-negotiable. You need to, to stay at, sit out for a year, go somewhere, get your grades up, and then maybe, you know, we'll reassess. We'll take a second look to see if you deserve to, to be here. And, and I was just, I was distraught. And I, I um, visited my, the man who would be my future father-in-law, James Trice, and, and he told me, he said, Dono, he said, everything is negotiable. And so my, my, my friend who became my husband, David and I drove back down to Champaign. And then we, I had to negotiate or talk to the Dean, Dean Copeland, who was an African-American man who was, you know, he gave me a hard time and rightly so. Mm-hmm. It's like, didn't we tell you that you are here for one thing? You, uh, were warned, you were warned, Don. You were warned. You were 
horned. And and I'm just, you know, I'm like, you were tail between your legs, just go there. And 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 he was just, he said, okay, sit out for a semester. And I just, you know, talk about getting my head right. I, I was, I sat out for a semester at a community college. I was so embarrassed. I did not go back home because my building um, at Lawless Gardens, I mean, they clapped me out. They were, when I left for college, they were so proud of me. And, and then when I, I flunked out, so I stayed with my father and my stepmother uh, in the suburbs and went to a community college and, and got back and finished in four years and was on the Dean's list several times. So I was really, it was a story that I'm like, well, nobody will invite me to leave again. <laughs> and I will do, I'll make sure that I'm doing what I need to do. So it was an incredible lesson, but yeah, it wasn't something that I, it was not a story that I had told wild, widely. No, but it's, it's a great story. And, and, and to follow up on that, when it comes to issues of education or finance, do you think that, that we as black people do a good enough job of squiring along other black people, of telling them these are some of the pitfalls that you might have and these are, like, like you got from your future father-in-law, no, we can go back and attack this another way if you want. Do you think that we do a good enough job of sharing that information? Well, I think it's super, super important to have mentors. It's super, it's so important to have people who, you know, really want nothing more from you than for you to succeed. And then they can help you. It is impossible to do any of this stuff alone. And so I think that's important. But at the same time, you know, as I said, we were warned, <laughs> we were told that, that you know, what we needed to do to, and the word was at the time, matriculate, <laughs> what we needed to do to get, um, get through. It wasn't enough to be accepted. You needed to end with a, with a degree. You need to go through, you know, and earn your degree. And so even sometimes when you're told, then, then you know, you can still stumble, but it's so, it's, it's, um, it's so helpful. And I think it's critical to have people around you who can help, help you at every at every point and so even when you're succeeding and can say you know go this way and not that way and then people when you do stumble because we all stumble to various degrees and and they can also say okay get up <laughs> lick your wounds wipe yourself off and and go back at it it's such a personal thing that that you're sharing i don't want to i want people to read this book so i don't want to tell all of the the really incredible stuff that's that's in here and all of the things that that you and Kim and Deborah go through in your lives but I I do love how even as a I'm a little bit younger than you as a black man that 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 grew up a little bit after you that I could still appreciate so I was hearing my mother's voice (laughs) with your mother and I was just I gotta get I gotta say this I and I ordinarily would not use language like this in mixed company, but I laughed my ass off when there was the description of your sister as two titties with a body behind it. I could not stop laughing. 
<laughs> I I was sitting there on the couch going, one, I can't believe she, she wrote that. Two, I can't believe that was said. And three, I am dying laughing because it's so funny and so spot on and exactly how a, a black woman of a certain age would talk. Well, you know, I, I think, and I don't mind giving the, the book away and talking about our journeys and only because I think that, that the story is still, I mean, you really don't lose anything from the story, but I do think that it's, it, it's important. I mean, my mother has a very distinct voice and it was important to get her voice in there the way it is because, you know, many of us, I mean, we're, we're quite bilingual. We have a voice, mm-hmm. we have our outside voice, <laughs> we have our indoor voice. <laughs> and I don't mean that in terms of um, volume. I mean that in terms of how we, how we speak to one another. And, and I think, and a lot of people have said that, you know, my mother is incredibly colorful and, and, and I grew up and I, and I really do think that in another, in an, you know, in another time, she would have been a writer. Um, because she, her turn of phrase and the way she sees the world, and not just my mom, but a lot of people, um, you know, that, that we, we tend to know, a lot of our family members, they just have the, the, the wonder, a wonderful way of distilling down just what they see into something and think in ways that are just incredibly imaginative. Do you view this experience as cathartic? Oh, um, that, that's really interesting because, you know, you, as you just said, I shared a lot of my business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a very personal story. And you really don't do that for therapy or cathartic reasons. You know, you do it um, in the hopes that there is a larger purpose. There's a greater purpose and that maybe somebody can see themselves in the story. Um, because, you know, if I wanted to do it purely for, because it was cathartic, um, I would have written it as a novel <laughs> and just disguised in, you know, like a lot of people do. You just tell your own story, but you tell it and you fictionalize it. Um, but to, to just lay it out there and, and have it, um, and have the reader know that this really happened and this is my story, it's, it's, I think it has to be more than, than, than therapy. But having said that, um, this is a story that I've chased, chased in various ways over the years in my journalism. And, and so if there's anything cathartic about it, I do feel like I can, I, I will still pursue stories about people with second chances and, and, and all of that and forgiveness and transcending pain, all of that. But um, I can say that this story, um, I, I can lay it to rest. Do you think that, that your experience, uh, let me phrase it this way. How do you think your experience growing up molded you as a journalist? Oh my God! Well, first of all, um, my sister and I used to, to 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 hide under the dining room table and listen to my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, and sometimes the men or whoever. We would just eavesdrop on their conversations, and so that really put me in the mind of the, this whole idea of storytelling and being um, in the the love of story telling, listening to people talk about their lives. Uh, but in terms of my, my, just the, the, you know, the trajectory of my life and, and the, the upbringing, um, I loved how Gwendolyn Brooks, who is one of my heroes, uh, I remember when my mother told me to, to read um, Gwendolyn Brooks's Maud Martha, 
And I was reading, you know, about all these little white girls. And she said, here, read this. <laughs> and, and I really, I didn't, I was very young and I really didn't get what Gwendolyn Brooks was getting to until maybe the third chapter of Ma Ma Martha, when I read about a street called Cottage Grove. And then I said, mom, look, she's, you know, here's Cottage Grove. And, and so my mother wanted me to read a story about people who look like me, but I was more interested at the time. These were people who lived like me. She was writing about my neighborhood. And so uh, in terms of my journalism, what my upbringing taught me is that there are so many communities that are so much more complex, um, far more than, than what we, we see, what we read about. You know, we have um, stories about people who parachute into a news story at the worst possible moment of, uh, you know, in a community, and then they leave it. It's almost like they're part of the wreckage. But what I wanted to do was tell stories of people um, who are who are just, you know, where they, they make a way out of no way. And they are creating communities that are far more complicated and complex and wonderful than the stories that are often told about them. When you talked about Kim being in the pool hall, I immediately went to We Real Cool. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like yeah. immediately, like in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this is exactly what, <laughs> What what uh, the, the poet laureate was talking about? Fun disclosure yeah. for me and humble brag. Uh -huh. My dad was friends with Gwendolyn Brooks. Shut up. Yeah, so my dad's a writer. Uh, he wrote a really good book about Sable, and mm -hmm. you don't realize stuff until later. Yep. So for me, it was very weird to then hear my parents talking or my dad talking about his friend Gwen. <laughs> Gwen, who used to come by the house. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then later you find out, oh, that was Gwendolyn Brooks. Great. <laughs> Great. I know. It's, it's astounding. Yeah. I mean, the but that is Bronzeville. And as, as you just said, I mean, I did not understand the heft. The, the, I mean, the, the people who live there from Dr. Daniel Hill Williams, Gwendolyn Brooks, Ida B. Wells, I mean, and Louis Armstrong, just all, Richard Wright, on and on and on, these people, these luminaries, um, people that we, we would bow at their altar. And as you just said, I mean, you've got, I mean, a, a woman that I, when I met her, I just, I was like a babbling idiot. And she was the most <laughs> gracious, um, she was just so kind, you know, and, and so unassuming. I'm like, you are Gwendolyn Brooks. And she was in your house. I am so jealous. I'm jealous too. My brother actually has a, a, an autograph from her. And it's, it's amazing. Like we were children and he, he splits the difference between you and I. He's like right in the oh. middle age wise between you and I. Okay. And, uh -huh. and I'm like, all of this stuff is so amazing. So, so let right. me, let me ask you. When you're out doing this book tour, I'm sure that there are now people that are like, that's Dawn Turner. <laughs> so what's that like? Well, I mean, it's, I, I don't think it's the same as when, when I was, you know, like, like pulling on the, the coattail of Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, but one of the most gratifying things that I've heard um, on, during the tour, and it's been a hybrid of, you know, Zoom and and in person, but when people say that they see themselves, and often it's women, um, black women, who say that they see themselves in either Deborah, Kim, or I, or so, some combination of the three of us, oh my God, that is so humbling. 
because, you know, again, when we talk about these stories, they're so complicated and they are, you know, there's some shame and some just fear of really putting yourself out there. But when people embrace those stories and they say, oh my God, I have a sibling who did this or a best friend, or that's my story, or, you know, I mean, just that it is just, I can't tell you how um, how just heartwarming it is to hear that. You saw, and in the book you chronicled, there's a lot of tragedy. There are a lot. There are a lot of moments where it would have been no one would have blamed you for kind of giving up on whatever your path was going to be. Mm-hmm. What was the thing that drove you on? Well, oh, I think that's an excellent question because. Um, one of the things that, that my family had and, and continues to have, and the same thing with Deborah's, is that we have incredibly strong networks. Now, I mean, um, there, have been t- there were times years ago when I felt like I had to forgive myself for not being able to save Deborah and Kim. I mean, different outcomes, mm. but you know, they, they both had challenges, but I also realized that I needed to, I needed to save them. I'm sorry. I needed to forgive them for not allowing us to save them. So I, I, I guess the, the, what I'm, the point that I'm trying to make is that we were very fortunate, um, even though there, there is tragedy, but there's a lot of joy and it's such a, um, you, you, it's, we were very fortunate to have people who loved us. Um, love was never a question uh, in terms of our, our, our family and our support. Um, and that was foundational. And it just breaks my heart that there are kids and, and you know, and, 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 and adults um, who just, who have not had that and who may not have that type of support. Um, Kim and Deborah in various ways fought against the support but it was there. I appreciate you so much for doing this. And I know that, that you are probably exhausted with, with going out and telling people about this, this, this book that how long did it take you to get it done and get it cleared and, and change people's names and everything else that you had to do for this book? Um, well, it, I started, well, I don't know. It took years and years and years because, but I really do. I, I began to write in earnest in um, about 2017, 2018. So, but I was collecting string and stories, but, and, and I have to say, um, just as a correction, I am never too tired to talk about this book because I'm so honored <laughs> that people are reading it. You know, we write, it's such an interior experience and you write kind of in your own little office or wherever. And then when you never know what's going to happen once the book goes out into the world. And so I'm just, I'm so grateful that people are reading it. <laughs> it, it was great. And like I told you, like seeing it, 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 it right there in the window at the silver room and, and, and knowing the foot traffic that that place brings about, I was really excited that, that we were going to get the opportunity to talk and it, and it didn't disappoint. So I, I thank you for the book. I'm, I literally have a group of people that I was like, you need to read this book. You need to read this <laughs> book. You. So, so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that more people will read it, especially even after this interview, but I appreciate your time. And if there's anything else I can ever do for you, don't hesitate to ask. Oh, well, I feel the same way about you. And I'm so, so grateful that you had me um, on your podcast. I'm just honored. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll, I'll, I'm usually uh, two or three weeks ahead. So this will, this will come out in a couple of weeks. Okay. 
That's fine. Around Christmas time. Yes, fine. around perfect yeah. for people to go and buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> I am so honored. I, I sincerely mean that. Thank you so much. And thank you for your patience. I really appreciate you. I really hope that you got out of that conversation what I got out of it. It was great to talk with Dawn about her journey and her story and the stories of other black women in Chicago. It's such a unique tale, and the way she told it, I, I thought, was was brilliant. Like seeing it through her eyes and her having to tell the stories of other people. It's one thing to tell your story. It's not easy to tell other people's stories and, and do it with clarity. Like, that sometimes is the issue. Like, are you clear about the stories that you're telling? And I love how she was able to tell this story. I was walking down 53rd Street. I live in Hyde Park, which is a couple neighborhoods over from Bronzeville. And I saw the book. Like, I knew knew that I had to get Dawn on the podcast because we had been talking about it, and that's what she references towards the end of the interview. I knew I had to get her on the podcast when I saw that her book was in the window of the Silver Room. And the Silver Room, if you haven't been to Hyde Park, Silver Room used to be in Wicker Park. used to be on Milwaukee Avenue. Eric has done a lot of great things. And then he brought Silver Room to Hyde Park. And it's a great place of, like, cultural exchange. It's a a celebration of black and and pan-African culture. So if you ever make it down to downtown Hyde Park, which is 53rd Street, it's also ridiculous that it's now called downtown Hyde Park. But, but you know what? Maybe I'll do this at some point on the podcast because you know I love talking about Hyde Park history, University of Chicago, football, stuff like that. Hyde Park still, to a large degree, acts like... It's its own city. I mean, we kind of have our own police department with the University of Chicago police along with our own university. In many ways, people here would hate to hear me say this, but it's the truth. In many ways, Hyde Park operates in Chicago the way that Texas operates in the United States. We're our own thing. We're our own thing here. And you better figure out a way to adapt. Don't mess with Hyde Park. We're so ridiculous. But yes, please. Go get Dawn's book. You'll learn a lot about Chicago. You'll learn a lot about her story. And you'll learn a ton about Bronzeville. Three Girls from Bronzeville, a unique American memoir of race, fate, and sisterhood. Dawn Turner was my guest, and I'm so glad that she was. Please go support her book. I look forward to your thoughts on it. Hit me up if you want. House of L Podcast at gmail.com. That's House of L Podcast at gmail.com. You can check it out for yourself. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you next time. Peace. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.